0: Welcome into the Sun Devil Source Report podcast. I'm Ethan Ryder today. I'm joined by reporter Jacob Rudner. Jacob, how are you doing today?
1: Doing swell, Ethan. Good to be back on the pod with you. I'm
0: also joined by reporter Carson Breber. Carson, how are you doing today?
2: I'm great, Ethan. Thank you.
0: And as always, I'm joined by Chris Cartman. Chris, how are you doing today?
3: Doing well. Plugging along. Good to be with you guys.
0: Yeah, so let's get right into it. This is going to be the review podcast of ASU's 35-21 to 21 loss against Utah. ASU is now 5-2 and two in the season and 3-1 and one in the Pac-12. They're no longer ranked and no longer hold its own destiny within the Pac-12 South, which we're just about to talk about. We're going to talk a little bit about just the opportunity that ASU had with this game and what impact the loss might have on its Pac-12 South aspirations. And just to kind of get right into it, ASU with a win would have had a 91% chance to win the Pac-12 South with the loss that drops down to 28%. And Utah on the other end would have had a 6% chance to win the Pac-12 South with a loss, but now with a win have a 65% chance to win the Pac-12 South. So first off, we'll go to you, Jacob. What did you see from this game in terms of opportunity for ASU and just what this loss might have in terms of impact on ASU for the rest of the season? Yeah, Ethan, uh, we,
1: we talked about it in the days leading up to the, the game, especially on our, our premium podcast, just about how ASU wins this game, and, and it was reflected in the FPI number, but if ASU wins this game, it puts itself in a position to control its own destiny on, on whether or not it would win the Pac-12 South. It would have put it far and away as the most you know uh, dangerous Pac-12 South team in comparison to its competition, Uh, It would have taken the only other undefeated team in the division and it would have given it its first loss of the season. And it just would have continued that March that started at UCLA where ASU was clearly the favorite uh, to win the division and the loss did the exact opposite for it. It now is in a position where it's reliant on Utah to be able to win or lose and take itself out of a position like ASU did. And it was abundantly clear that that was the case going into the contest Uh, After ASU had beaten Stanford and as Utah came into the game with an undefeated record as well. So, you know, it it absolutely squandered an opportunity to be the team that controlled the pace of the Pac-12 South, who controlled the winner of the Pac-12 South eventually. And now it is in a position where it is reliant on another team to win or lose. And it also has to keep pace with that team because when and if that if that loss comes, ASU has to continue to win if it hopes to make up the ground that it lost in that game.
2: Yeah, I mean, I feel like the numbers that you read off there, Ethan, are telling enough alone. It's the difference between almost certainty, it felt like, winning the Pac-12 South and now it being kind of an improbability and you've suffered this crushing loss. And now it's a test of your resilience. And ASU doesn't have a whole ton of gimme games. They have a lot of games that they should be favored in. And I think that this Utah game was probably one of the most toss-up type games ones that they had on their schedule. And it's obviously not just crushing because you lose and because of the significance for that on just now you don't have the tiebreaker over Utah. You're a half game back of them as far as your record and conference play goes. It's also just the fact that you were dictating the game, that it seemed like you were the better team for such a significant portion. And then all of a sudden it just went completely off the rails. So this is a test of... ASU's ability to win games, not only because, hey, they're still trying to win a Pac-12 South and probably a Pac-12 title, but also in how do they respond to this level of disappointment? Because we saw BYU, and that was obviously kind of a disastrous game. They came back really strong from that one. This is now part two of that, though. And so the sense of urgency obviously has to be dialed up to the highest possible level because you can't have another game like that where you let it slip away or where you beat yourself in any of these ways, or you just go completely stagnant on offense and you can't get a stop on defense. Like with five games left, there is not that room for error anymore. And had a, you won this one, they could have afforded a loss down the stretch. And now you, know, maybe they can still, they can probably still afford one loss, but maybe not because Utah has that tiebreaker. So it's just really put them in a position where you have to be in that winning time mode immediately and you can't mess up.
3: Yeah, you just look at the Pac-12 South, and it's it's obvious how significant that the game was to the likely outcome in this conference because Arizona three losses, USC three losses, they're done, they have no chance. Colorado one and two lost to ASU, so no no head to head tiebreaker advantage. And ASU beat UCLA, UCLA three and one. That's a head-to-head. If ASU had beaten Utah, it would have the head-to-head. It would also have the head, the three-way tiebreaker over both of those teams, uh, in the event uh, of the, either one of them tying or both of them tying. And um, that—that's basically uh, we—we've never probably felt like a team had a complete stranglehold over the division this early in the season. But that's what it would have felt like uh, for ASU and. Um, At the same time, there is no team from the South that has gone undefeated in the Pac-12. There's been several that have have been one-loss teams. ASU did it. Utah did it. I think maybe USC did it one time. Um, And so the odds are that Utah is not going to go unscathed through the rest of the Pac-12. And in fact, um, there's a difficult stretch now that Utah has ahead of it playing um, at at Oregon State. Pardon me. Uh, this weekend, then home game against UCLA, then at Stanford. The odds are that Utah is going to w- lose at least one of those three on average, uh, maybe even one and a half on average, somewhere in that range. And then um, even though Utah does have games that it should easily win at Arizona and uh, at home against Colorado in the final three, the its other game in that final three stretch is against Oregon, which of course – it's a home game, but at best, is a toss-up type of a game as well. So, I think there's a really good chance that, that Utah loses two more games. At least one, it would be likely. Uh, the problem, though, as Carson said, is now ASU has at a minimum to go four and one the rest of the way, and, but four and one only gets you a tie with Utah in a lot of circumstances. And so, maybe ASU might have to run the table and go five and zero. Oh, but 5 and 0 includes not only what should be wins against Arizona and Washington State at home and USC at home which is you know, USC's bad but it's on a gimme uh, but then ASU also has to win on the road in November in, against Washington and Oregon State and those are pretty much going to be somewhere between 50-50 to 60-40 games either way ASU is on average probably going to lose one of those games. The the all the odds that Ethan was giving were, were from ESPN FPI, which also uh, has ASU with a average expectation of 8.7 wins this season, meaning probably going to lose one of those two toss up games on the road, and then a a a small chance of also uh, losing the other one of those two or one of the other three games. Uh, on the schedule. Uh, I I think that it's important to note that it's far from over, far, far from over. Uh, We we have seen in the past ASU have seasons where uh, it's fallen apart. People will remember the, we we talked a lot about two years ago, 5-1, lost to Utah, then lost three games in a row. Uh, We've seen other seasons from the past with ASU, uh, looked like they were headed in a very promising way, only to fall apart. Um, 2011, uh, we saw that. We saw that the ASU was a top five team in, under Todd Graham uh, and then lost two of its last three games Oregon State and Arizona. Um, and, uh, you know, flip side, we've, we've seen ASU go on some runs that were kind of unexpected, where they reeled off, uh, they, they lost a the game, and then they went on a big winning streak. Of four or five games, um, so either one is possible. Don't know what's going to happen, but that was such a opportunity on a platter when ASU's winning twenty-one to seven at halftime, uh, that you just you don't get a lot of opportunities to take that much control of a division when you're ASU in the Pac-12 South. It's probably a once in a decade opportunity to give yourself that much margin for error built into the last five games of your schedule. And now they have given that up and they have to regroup and play extremely well here over the the next, uh, after their bye week, basically over the next six weeks.
0: And as you said, the the big point coming out of that is they no longer hold their own destiny but that's kind of what the loss meant let's get into the game and how ASU maybe did lose that game Jacob we'll go to you first the offense in the first half we're going to start talking about the first half first we'll go to the offense they moved the football very well in the first half they did have mistakes but they were able to kind of overcome those mistakes how did you see them go about in that first half how were they able to be successful and were there any indicators to what maybe happened in the second half
1: I mean, like you said, ASU was able to effectively move the ball. In the first quarter alone, it accumulated 128 yards. A quarter later, it accumulated 160. So 288 yards of total offense in the first half alone is, is no joke. That, that's a very solid performance. And by the way, that includes 6.6 rushing yards per carry. So, I mean, in terms of moving the ball down field and scoring points, ASU did just fine. It put up 21 points. Uh, it, it, it was effective and efficient with its plays. So that was good. I would say though, that it was not a great performance like 288 yards of total offense and a 21 point, uh, you know, showing in the first half might indicate there were several dropped passes that ASU has to be able to catch that were potential indicators for what was going to happen in the second half where that continued. And it was also fairly penalized in the first half. It, it, It committed seven offensive penalties, which could have been more. So it wasn't the cleanest performance by any means from this ASU offense, even though it was able to move the ball fairly well. And this is important because we've seen in games past where ASU has been able to look okay and it runs into some trouble where it kind of backs itself off of making progress. It did it at BYU, although it was much more shut down in that game offensively ASU definitely had uh, problems in terms of its disciplinary play and that was a problem throughout the entirety of this game particularly on the offensive end and we saw that in the first half so you know to answer your question Ethan do I think that it looked ASU looked okay offensively before halftime sure and it put up 21 points like like we've all said and the 288 yards are very solid the issue however is that it didn't look disciplined in that and there were also mistakes in terms of its ability to catch the ball And things like that. So it wasn't perfect. If anything, in my opinion, it was an indicator for what was to come. Uh, So I think honestly, it it was an average performance despite the output.
2: Wow. I think that's a little overly critical from Jacob there. And I would argue that, you know, you talk about a couple of the missed opportunities, maybe with drops and whatnot. Sure, that's imperfect. But also, if you're able to put up 21 points in spite of that, I would argue that's less of an indicator of problems to come and more of, hey, you expect that to stop and you'll perform even better going forward. And I think, sure, it wasn't perfect. The penalties on the offensive line were absolutely there. Utah was able to move the ball decently well, and yet, I mean, they only had the one actual sustained scoring drive. Other than that, ASU was able to force three three three-and-outs. They were able to force two timely turnovers, and i thought that they were able to accomplish a lot of the things that they wanted to. They ran the ball exceptionally well on that first half. They had 131 yards. I just thought that they were completely dictating how that game was being played. They were passing the ball effectively. Jaden was 11 for 17 with 157 yards and two touchdowns. He had a touchdown on the ground as well. Like i think that that's a little bit of with retrospect you can look back and say, "Oh, well we saw all these cracks." I don't totally agree with that though. I thought that they played a pretty darn good half of football and sure, maybe they weren't two touchdowns better than Utah. And maybe that shouldn't have been the expectation for the entire game, but I thought they were clearly the better football team by a decent margin in that first half. And then it was like out of the half, obviously everything changed completely, but I don't think that was like a fraudulent 21 to seven at all.
3: So look, I think maybe I can bridge the gap between those two perspectives, right? Um, yes, ASU did move the ball quite well, and and did so uh, on the ground and with balance, Um, and at the same time, uh, a lot of the self-inflicted type uh, uh, wounds that we have seen from ASU when things haven't gone well were quite apparent uh, in that quarter, in that half, pardon me, especially in the second quarter, and So specifically, what we saw was, uh, as opposed to BYU, where they had a lot of snapping issues because they were doing the clapping, snapping from Jaden Daniels, they went with a silent count from the outset uh, of this game, where uh, the left guard, Ladarius Henderson, he turns around, he looks at Jaden Daniels. When Jaden Daniels lifts his foot, the, the appropriate number of times, one, two times, whatever, then Henderson taps the center, the center snaps the ball. Okay. Well, what happened in the first half uh, that was a precursor was um, uh, Kellen Deesh had multiple false starts, which was an indication of trying to anticipate the snap so as not to get beaten by the. The, the end who is also able to key the football more easily because of this snapping protocol. And then, and then ASU also had, uh, only five guys at the line of scrimmage on a couple of plays. One of those Brian Thompson, uh, as a receiver, wasn't at the line of scrimmage as He was supposed to be the other one. I couldn't see because, uh, on replay, because the, the, the TV coverage was bad for me. They didn't actually show the play, uh, or replay. Um, and, uh, And then they had holding penalties, which, which, you know, as I said, that's related to also uh, getting beaten on the snap at the end. So you'll notice that Ben Scott, he struggled. It had his worst game against Tafua, who we said was a major challenge for him in this game. And Deesh also struggled. Uh, And so those were the, their hints of that were there. They did overcome that, as Carson correctly stated, and they scored uh, 21 points. And they also um, probably could have even scored more if we're looking at it. They had a, 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 some other opportunities that they weren't able to capitalize on, but um, uh, you know, you're not going to fault ASU's offense uh, in the first half whatsoever.
0: Yeah, and. We'll talk about the offense a little bit later in terms of the second half that you guys touched on a little bit. Uh, Carson touched on a little bit the defense in the first half. They were able to force two interceptions. Uh, There might have been a couple other things, as you would say, wasn't perfect, I guess, similarly to the offense that we were just talking about. In in terms of the defense, Jacob, what, what did you see from them in the first half and why they were able to force those two interceptions and be successful?
1: Yeah, I mean, considering who ASU was missing in this game, I think it was a, a pretty solid performance in the first half. It didn't have Chase Lucas, it didn't have Evan Fields, and still it was able to generate two turnovers, including an interception by the, the person who replaced Evan Fields, Kewan Markham, uh, and it looked pretty good. Uh, ASU's defense did still allow 5.4 yards per attempt per, per total plays uh, to Utah, which is it's solid, but it's also you know it it. it ASU did a good job limiting Utah. Uh, One of the things that I I did see in the first half that continued throughout the second half, ASU did struggle at times to contain Cameron Rising, who was able to make a lot of stuff happen with his feet. Uh, And we knew that that was going to be something that would be a potential problem for ASU in this game. But still, it wasn't burnt badly at all in the first half. It only allows seven points, gave up 170 total yards. It was in the second half, which we'll get to, that ASU's defense really imploded. And in the first half, It was solid, and and it did its job. It did what it needed to do, and it, for the most part, kept Utah off the scoreboard, which is what its job is.
3: I thought the first half was pretty deceptive, actually, uh, in this regard. Um, Utah moved the football pretty easily, and at will. It it responded to ASU uh, after the first touchdown drive with a very successful sustained drive of its own. Um, but then it had the, the driving and interception that Darian Butler picked off when one of Utah's tight ends fell down. And then um, to end the half, there was the the Kiwan Markham interception that he made a nice play on. Both of those were well into ASU defensive territory and either one of those possessions could have resulted in points. We also saw that Tamarcus Davis got burned pretty badly in coverage and rising over through it. And then there was another play that was uh, an overthrow by rising where uh, Utah had a player behind ASU's defense. So it had a, had Utah connected on either of those uh, or either one of those plays, individual great plays by uh, Butler or Markham had not happened, then we would have been in a much closer game, maybe even in a tie score game uh, going into halftime. Uh, I, I just don't uh, – when I watched the game back, I saw a lot of signs that this, the score was not entirely indicative of the way that the game looked in terms of Utah's ability to move the ball but only scoring seven points uh, in that first half. It shows you why, of course, that, um, that turnovers are – hurts are so critical in a game, especially when you get them, when the opponent is, is in scoring position. Um, but what, what I also noticed in the first half that really was a uh, had a spillover effect to ASU's big problems in the second half, um, the defense was really caught in between a base personnel and a nickel personnel in a way that it wasn't able to resolve in the entire game. And uh, one of the things that I talked a lot about and wrote about when ASU played UCLA was uh, Antonio Pierce did a really good job of mixing things up so that they changed on base downs from having three linebackers to having three corners and one safety to being in a nickel grouping and that sort of unbalanced uh, UCLA from a play calling standpoint. In this game, what we saw early on was uh, ASU's linebackers, Merlin Robertson, uh, Gentry Butler. They were put into some really difficult situations covering tight ends, where they they did okay actually uh, in the first half in that regard. But because of Utah's ability to move its tight ends around so much and do so many different things with them, and without having to substitute, ASU wasn't able to get wasn't able to get between. Uh, figuring out what was the best personnel for the, the type of range of plays from whatever formation that Utah was going to be in. So um, it, it, had ASU gone to nickel personnel, it would have it would have hindered ASU's ability to um, defend the run because now you're a lighter and you'd take a linebacker off the field. But also it would have put that nickel defender going up against tight ends sometimes in some disadvantageous situations. And that was a a problem that ASU never was able to resolve in this game. And and I want to say that a lot of credit has to be given um, to Utah's coaching staff, which I have always said and felt is one of the best in the conference, maybe even the best in the conference. I thought that Chris Peterson did a great job at Washington uh, for, for his years and David Shaw, especially earlier on did a really tremendous job, but Whittingham is the longest tenured coach in the PAC 12 for a reason. And their coordinators, Morgan Scali on defense and um, uh, I'm blanking on their offensive coordinator, pardon me, but he uh, he's been there for three years in his second stint. And he has done a really tremendous job as well. And, um, I, I think that so ASU was quite honestly uh, kind of outcoached, but part of that was because Antonio Pierce didn't have, as Jacob said earlier, the full complement of his personnel in the secondary. Like had ASU had uh, Evan Fields and Chase Lucas, I think that alone would have changed the game going into the second half, which I'll have to talk about in another round.
2: Yeah, I don't have a whole ton to add to that. I think that what I would say, though, that also maybe if you want to talk about ASU having a deceptively good half on defense, because Utah wasn't able to have a ton of those real sustained drives because they did have a couple of three and outs and they did have a couple turnovers, we just didn't see them run the ball with the same volume or success as we did in the second half, which we'll talk about. But that ended up kind of being the death by a thousand cuts for ASU and that just they could knock it off the field. And fatigue plays a factor there too, sure. But it was also just a different extent to which Utah was able to get comfortable and say, hey, we're just going to hand the ball off every time and get six yards automatically and you can't stop us that we didn't see in the first half. And it, again, maybe that was an area in which we didn't see the full extent to which they could kind of be dominated in that matchup. Although Utah did run the ball fine in the first half, they went 13 for 63. It just definitely was not the same feeling as we saw later in the game.
3: Wait, can I just add one more thing that I kind of forgot to mention? If you look at uh, Utah's first half, um, there was at least one drive, and maybe even two drives, where they had penalties that that move them backwards. And ultimately, led to them punting. So the second quarter, uh, they had um, they had a hold um, that turned a successful play on second and seven into a second and seventeen, and then they ended up having to punt as a result of that. And then their next drive, they had a um, second and twenty one that they that they uh, ended up facing. So. And then they, they ended up having to punt there. So the, the point is, is that it wasn't just the two turnovers. It was also Utah's penalties, which ended up in, in two failed drives. And as we've seen from ASU in its big losses this season, its penalties have cost its own produ- productivity in ways that it created an inability to turn drives into points. So I just thought that there was a little bit of irony there. And then Utah didn't have those problems really in the second half, partly because it just lined up and ran ran the ball really successfully. Uh, And, and, and ASU um, didn't have as many penalties in the second half, but it still had a lot of problems.
0: Yeah. The the big storyline in, in terms of, the first half was the offense and defense doing well per se, but maybe there were mistakes and and maybe it wasn't quite as much as met the eye. But if you go into the second half, it wasn't, of course, the same half for ASU. Offensively, their best drive was a 42-yard drive, and it ended up in a missed field goal. So the offense wasn't quite doing as well as they were in the first half. Jacob, what did you see from the offense, and why do you think they weren't as successful?
1: Yeah, I mean, ASU was completely stifled in the second half. It, it just couldn't move the ball. Uh, and, and in addition to that, there were several errors in terms of drop passes. Uh, and, and like Chris said, penalties weren't as much a problem. There were five total in the second half, a couple of which were defensive. But, I mean, man, was this a, a very tough offensive performance. ASU just accumulated 97 total yards in the half as a whole. And that came on 29 total plays, although the standout statistic to me is the 15 rush attempts throughout the entirety of the second half that went for 1.1 yards per carry. Uh, ASU was just completely shut down. Another key statistic, it went two for seven on third downs, 29%. Uh, that is far below where Zach Hill said this team needs to be as a group. Uh, it was dominated in the time of possession battle. It, it had just 10 minutes and 47 seconds of total possession in the third and fourth quarters, whereas Utah was just shy of 20 minutes. Uh, it was, it was not a good half, and it, I would go as far as to say it was probably its worst half of offensive football so far this season. Uh, it just couldn't get anything done. I don't think that this is necessarily Jaden Daniels' fault, and I'm sure Chris is going to get into that a lot more. I think he looked solid. I do think that his receivers, however, did not play well. They dropped passes that needed to be caught, and that went a long way in ASU's inability to create first downs and to actually move the ball and to generate drives that went on longer than 42 yards as their best drive. So yeah, I mean, in total, this was a very poor half of football for the Sun Devils for sure.
2: Yeah, it was a pretty much full on collapse and it was sort of just a self defeating cycle. And then obviously offense struggles to stay on the field, then defense struggles to get off the field and all these things just compound each other. And they were kind of just blitzed early and really were not able to respond. I think that Jacob touched on an important thing with the missed opportunities coming off of drops in that ASU had three drops on third downs in total, two on what would have been first downs. One of them was on a Brian Thompson, third and 23. So a little more excusable there as far as just the significance and how much that hurts you as a team. But it is beyond that in that what we talked, about where I think you're right Jacob. Jaden played really a good game throughout, but the difference between the first half and the second half is in the second half he's facing overwhelming pressure and he's stacked four times. And so even though that those drops are killer undeniably I don't know that ASU was generating reliable offense no matter what. Like you said, they couldn't run the ball. And if you told me that their streak of 11 straight regular season games with 150 rushing yards was going to be broken in a game where they had 131 in the first half, that would be pretty shocking to me. So it was just completely different. It went from ASU dictating, running the ball successfully, and sure, there were the holding penalties, and maybe that was reflective of some pressure that Utah was getting in that first half or some mistakes by the offensive line but that was just dialed up to a completely different level in the second half when they were still pretty penalized and they had five penalties for 50 yards, but it was just nothing went right. And again, it was just this self-defeating cycle and they really were just thoroughly outplayed. And I agree with Jacob. This was the worst offensive half that they've had. And they obviously stagnated against Stanford and couldn't score offensively in that second half, but they had missed opportunities there on shot plays and whatnot where it felt like, okay, if they play this game a couple times or this play a couple times, it could easily go the other way. In this one, it was kind of just like they were completely outmanned.
3: So, look, if we go through this, um, they, Utah comes out – drives down scores. Uh, ASU needed to have some what of an answer in the way that Utah answered ASU's first drive, to start the game. But then Jalen Conyers drops a third and three over the middle that was wide open. And then Utah gets the ball back, scores, and ASU has an opportunity uh, to have another you know chance to to have some sort of a response. You know, did have – did, you know, kind of move the ball decently well. Um, But then uh, uh, holding penalty by Kellan Deesh was a thing I was talking about earlier. The the It gets a little bit loud in there, um, and they're doing the silent snapping. He's not keying the football, so he's getting a little bit of a later uh, entrance into his kickstart. Utah's bringing a lot of pressure. He holds, moves ASU behind the chains and then is uh, not able to, to, to come out of that. Uh, Jane Daniels gets sacked on, on second down and then the facing third and forever, right? And that, that's, that's it. That's the whole second quarter for, for ASU. So now, you know, Utah's offense is on the field a lot. ASU's defense is kind of getting worn down. Uh, ASU has no rhythm, right? And you come back onto the field and um, you, you get a first down, but then you face a third and six and then you have the LV Bunkley Shelton thing where he kind of falls down and has a drop. And then you have to, the ball wasn't perfectly thrown, but still probably should have been caught. Daniels doesn't know he's going to fall down. And then ASU ends up having to punt and then, Utah comes down, scores again, takes a two-touchdown lead, and now you're in this uh, uh, truly desperate type of situation where you really can't run the ball, and um, the defense can sort of just come after you. And uh, there's not a lot of confidence that's been built up at this point with ASU's uh, receivers over a very large stretch of time. Uh, um, You got some uncertainty as a play caller through Zach Hill, because you know that Daniels is going to be under pretty significant duress when this situation is what it is. And I think it just shrunk down what they would be able to do. And so the, the ASU's defensive problems exacerbated its offensive problems and vice versa. And the entire thing just spiraled really out of control.
0: Let's talk a little about that, those defensive problems and the offense, of course, as we just said, maybe weren't quite fire and all cylinders, but you said the defense maybe had something to do with that. They gave up 28 points in the second half and they didn't stop Utah on any of their drives from scoring a touchdown. So, Jacob, what did you see defensively that really created or enabled Utah to be as strong as they were in the second half?
1: I mean, just out the jump, right after the break, ASU allowed Utah to pretty much do whatever it wanted offensively. In total, Utah finished the second half with 285 yards and obviously scores 28 points after halftime, whereas ASU scores none. But Utah could have done whatever pretty much in the second half. It rushed the ball 23 times for 6.3 yards per carry for a total of 154 rushing yards. It was 13 for 15 Uh, passing with two passing touchdowns with 140 passing yards and committed just two penalties as a team in in the entirety of the second half. And ASU's defense did little to slow that down Uh, on third downs. When ASU had chances to get that offense off the field, it wasn't able to do that. Utah went four for five on third downs. It also, it it also allowed a fourth down conversion, though. It was just one. I mean, allowing a team to, to, to have 7.5 yards per play on 38 total plays in the second half, and you're trying to protect a lead, it doesn't work. And Antonio Pierce, he he could only really describe that performance as shocking after the game, and it really was. This is the defense that has been quite strong throughout the year to this point, and then even in the first half, it looks fine. And and like Chris says, there were, there were some telltale signs, but it was okay, and then it gets to the second half and just explodes. So it was a, a, a fairly shocking performance. It allowed Utah to stay on the field for the you know, a a long time in the second half, 19 minutes and 13 seconds, like I said uh, in in our last section. And, and it was just, it was a lot of ball movement and very little response from ASU's defense.
2: Yeah. I think Jacob put it well. It really felt like whatever Avenue Utah was going to choose, they could find success with. They were highly efficient passing. They were highly efficient running the ball. They were exceptional on third down. And I think that now ASU's tight end coverage This is an area in which they've struggled now for three weeks and they've faced good tight ends, but it's not really typical to allow tight ends to get 100-plus yards on you in three consecutive weeks. And for Utah, I mean, they are fundamental to the offense. But regardless, when you have three different tight ends who have successful days, it's just seemingly a flaw in this defense. But I think that Jacob touched on it and that it just was... uh, how easily Utah was generating offense and just how consistently they were able to dictate the pace. They were able to possess the ball for 19 minutes because they could just run the ball as they pleased. They could also get chunk plays through the air. They opened their second drive of the half with a 16-yard run and then a 20-yard run. And it's like, okay, in two plays, without even taking a gamble, you have put yourself basically in scoring position because they didn't start with terrible field position there either. And those are just the kind of things that a veteran defense it hadn't let anybody top 10 points in the second half all year that had been so stifling, regardless of injury, you expect more of an effort than that. And really, I mean, not holding a team to less than a touchdown for an entire half of football when they have four possessions is pretty remarkable no matter what. But especially when you have the Pac-12's top scoring defense, the Pac-12's top defense as far as yards allowed, it was just a jarring performance and ASU was pretty thoroughly dominate in the entire half in basically every phase when it comes to their defensive performance.
3: Utah does really well uh, generally historically under Whittingham. It, they don't beat themselves and they they move the ball, you know, not explosively, but they do it consistently on first and second downs and they get themselves into Convertible third down situations, and they don't have a lot of penalties. They had in this half two penalties. The one, one was a five yard garden variety, variety penalty. The other was Covey uh, celebrating after a, a third down, a, a successful conversion of a first down. So they still uh, got that got, um, they still scored on um, after that. The 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 third down conversions. Only one failed in, in the half. Well, they only had one that was longer than four yards. They pretty much ran the ball right down ASU's throat from the get go. And if people will remember, when we probably talking about on the podcast or on our our message board or both, uh, one of the things I said at the outset of the season is that the the, the most concerning position group for ASU is the linebackers. People would say, "Oh, with well, their linebackers, they got." Merlin Robertson, Darian Butler, Kyle Soli, the returning starters and some of the most experienced guys in the Pac-12, if not in the country, overall. And um, so maybe the bigger question mark would be their defensive line. Of course, they have a very veteran returning secondary. But what happened in this um, second half is the linebackers did not show up where, where they were supposed to be, uh, right, from the, right from the get-go. Uh, Darian Butler, Jumps to the wrong gap. Kyle Soli is in the wrong place. Merlin Robertson is getting blocked pretty easily. uh, I hate to say it, but uh, by by tight ends, like very controlled. And, And that plus, remember, we said Evan Fields not being in this game would have an impact against the run because he's a very good run supporter. So now they're asking DeAndre Pierce to do some of the things that he's not quite as good at, that Evan Fields is better at, or Keywon Markham is having to come up and do some of these things that he's never really been asked to do in in big-time games. Um, If they had, I think, Evan Fields, then maybe they can go to some nickel personnel. But what Utah does so well is when they get running the ball effectively, then they get into the play actions. And this is why they 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 Utah converted all five of its passes in the third quarter, because they become deadly when they have those tight ends working off of those tight splits and the ability to move those guys around and get them on some generated some mismatches. And whether ASU is playing zone or man, they got they got problems, they got liabilities. Whether they're in nickel or whether they're in base, they got problems, they got liabilities. And then you have as uh, uh, Jacob said earlier, Cam Rising is able to take the ball around the edge. He's able to scramble. He, he extends plays. He, he 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 does it to throw. He does it to run. He creates problems. And so there really was no answer for this that ASU ever even remotely came uh, close to, to coming up with because there were just too many problems. It's a, they, the leaks were coming from everywhere in the dam. And so they had no ability to to plug them all up, and I, I I would say that when you don't have Lucas and you don't have Fields, that that's a problem, and like against any pretty good team that's well coached. But then Tamarcus Davis got beaten in the first half. He got replaced for a while. Then Ed Woods struggled. He gave up a, uh, what what could have been a touchdown that was not completed by Utah. Uh, then they eventually come back to uh, Tamarcus Davis. And then he is in coverage again where uh, it, both times he was playing off coverage and he let a guy go by him because he had dirty eyes. So it, the second time, it's like he holds – it's like, like what's going on here? He had been so good uh, throughout the whole season that he, his play, his unraveling and the linebackers unraveling, I, I, I just think that they – they, they've lost their composure out there. Uh, you know, the environment not being able to rise to the to the challenge, uh, the fact that maybe they're not that disciplined of a team when they do commit that many penalties. Um, I think it all sort of folds in together. and when it gets going bad because of what Utah does well and successfully and then is confident in, um, it, 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 it can look really ugly, and that's what happened.
0: It looked ugly, as you said, the defense not playing the greatest of second halves. We'll move on to the special teams. Chris, I'll go to you for this one. The special teams, I don't know if you'd say they played spectacularly, but they maybe played okay. What were your thoughts on that unit throughout the game?
3: Gosh, well, let's start with the fact that ASU took a timeout on a PAT, and it was not the first PAT of the game, it was the second one, where Will Schaefer came onto the field. So they had 12 guys on, somebody on the sidelines alerts to that, and they take a timeout. Well, that, that, at the beginning of the second half, after Utah scores to make it a one-touchdown differential, you need the timeout. You're going to move the ball a half a yard. They're still going to kick a PAT. Uh, so that's bad coaching. Uh, and also you shouldn't have that happen where Schaefer's on, um, you know, I think what happened is Kyle Soli, uh was limited in practice and because he was limited in practice, getting, getting some rest or whatever the case may be, they probably had Schaefer in his place with the ones on their uh, PAT uh, defense unit. And so then you, the game comes and force a habit or just kind of like, he automatically runs onto the field. I'm with the ones on this. Well, Kousalou out there too. There never should be a penalty, okay? And then later on in the game, uh, DJ Taylor, who's been a non-factor in the returns, after he had that really catastrophic fumble and was taking the ball out from, you know, deep in in the end zone, he gets out there. He has a big return, but. Uh, ASU has a, a block in the back penalty or a hold, I think it actually was by George Hartz their, their walk-on running back who's out there that negates that. Okay. So that's that is a continuation of the theme of really bad execution and decisions on special teams. And then uh, Eddie Chaplitsky, who was so good in the team's first four to four games or so, um, he struggled on on his punts again. Uh, he had one really good punt but that came after a Utah penalty, which fortunately for Ace who came on a bad punt, and then he had a, a good one. Other, his other punts were, did not flip the field when he had opportunities um, to do so. And then The other thing that was a really uh, sort of perplexing special teams problem was it, it, it seemed like uh, Logan Tyler had no awareness that he might be called upon in the event of a long field goal situation so he's running on late and it's a 51 yard field goal or whatever it is um and they they had no composure on that play and and and, and, and by the way we saw in camp Logan Tyler was really bad on on field goals in general and missing a lot of long a lot of field goals in the exact same way that he missed that field goal, which is not getting a clean contact, the ball not getting up, not really having much of a chance to get through the uprights. But, but, but more importantly is the attention to detail that would lead to a 12th guy being on the field uh, on that PAT and the attention to detail that where nobody is telling Logan Tyler and or he doesn't automatically know, hey, look, we have the ball in around the 35-yard line of Utah and it's a, we're going to be facing a fourth down here. I'm going to have to know to get on the field in that situation. Neither one of those things should happen. The penalties on the returns have happened way too much. And there's not, you can excuse a freshman punter, uh, not having some good punts. The other things they, they just shouldn't happen in a game like this.
0: And you talk about penalties in special teams. You talk about maybe a lack of the little things that would cause Kind of bigger problems to happen. Let's talk a little bit about the penalties in terms of holistically, in terms of the season. And and we talked about this after the BYU game. We've talked about this throughout the season. In this game, there were 13 penalties for 115 yards. So Jacob, we'll go to you first, but there's been a lot of penalties this year. There maybe were some more procedural ones at BYU versus this game against Utah. Are any of these related and what do these kind of continuing theme of penalties say about maybe the discipline of this team?
1: I mean, as it it speaks to the discipline, it's really becoming a problem. ASU is among the most penalized teams in the country, and it looked like it may have gotten to a point where it turned a corner or, you know, it seemed that way. Uh, There was a stretch of games where it was not highly penalized, especially to open Pac-12 play. And then it comes back and it has 13 recorded penalties against Utah, a number that really could have been 15, if not for offsetting penalties that negated two more that ASU had throughout the game. Uh, it, it is, very simply put, just happening too much for ASU. This is an, an experienced team with veteran leadership. It's a, it's a group that is supposed to be mature and, you know, kind of ready. For these larger louder environments it's seen environments like this before this isn't like the 2019 team where half of the team's most important players are true freshmen and have never played in this situation like this before that's absolutely not the case and still it's playing like a team that is extremely undisciplined and as evidenced by a 13 penalty performance against utah in a critical game that you kind of have to win If you want to continue your march towards this almost guaranteed Pac-12 South title for the first time since 2013. And like you said, Ethan, it isn't the same type of procedural penalties necessarily like it had against Utah. It's just straight discipline this time. It needs to be more disciplined in scenarios where you can't commit a holding penalty on third down that takes your team out of a scenario where it can convert. You can't negate a great kick return by DJ Taylor by holding or blocking in the back I'm I'm forgetting which one it was and and we talked about that on our podcast where again special teams you can't do things like that because there's going to come a time where the kick returns are going to be important and you're going to take away great field position and it happened again so I you know it's kind of one of those things that you you'd think would be cleaned up by now but clearly it isn't and so I don't know maybe this is kind of part of the identity of this team but it's certainly a problem
2: yeah I think it's alarming and like Jacob said, you just don't expect it from a team that's so experienced, obviously. In week one, Herm's rationale was, well, this team was overly emotional, and I could kind of see it coming that this was a danger. But here we are, seven games in now, and it remains an issue. And ASU is being penalized 9.6 times a game. That's the most that they have been this century. They're giving up 90 penalty yards a game. That's the most of this century. And like Jacob touched on, it's not like there's one phase of the game that you can isolate and say, oh, okay. This unit is the problem. We have seen everything. We have seen, obviously, operational issues from the offensive line. This past game, it was the holds on the offensive line that plagued them. We have seen many significant special teams penalty. We have seen multiple 12 men on the field. We have seen targeting penalties on Tyler Johnson and BJ Green and Kyle Soli. And it's just kind of mind-boggling that you can have that many lapses in that many different areas on a team that is so rich with experience and that has full intentions to contend in the talent to contend. Like, I don't think that there is anything obviously more painful to a team than beating itself. And that is what ASU has had to grapple with this entire year. And so I don't know if this is getting corrected at this point. I don't frankly anticipate that it totally is because when you have four performances like they have, as far as penalties go, where it's just, one of these storylines if not the storyline of the game and you've only played 7 games that is just really inexcusable and it could be ultimately the downfall of this team and it's probably a significant reason that they are 5 and 2 right now instead of maybe 6 and 1 or 7 and 0 oh. and again they had a 13 penalty game they had a 16 penalty game now they had another 13 penalty game that's just not normal and it's inexcusable especially this deep into the season, that this is showing up again?
3: You know, what's most alarming about it was actually Herm Edwards' answer to this question immediately after the game. Um, we asked him about it, uh, and, and I'm just going to quote what he said. This is a quote uh, You know, I have no idea. I mean, I wish I could tell you. It just reared its head again. Well, If you don't know how do you fix it It, it, you're the you're the head coach right we see it that he's got his pen and he marks down every penalty and, and probably categorizes it right well those are the things that you have to then figure out how to resolve and they did have you know by the way out of all their penalties they did have still have some procedural penalties they had uh, false start by Deesh, false start by Hattis. Um, they had uh, two, uh, two, two with um, not enough many guys at the line of scrimmage. Uh, so those are, all, those are that's at least four that I can think of that are procedural. And then they had the holds. And I, as I said, the holds were a combination of Utah being very good at defensive end, coupled with ASU going to the silent snapping protocol and losing the advantage of the clapping, what that does for you at tackles and the way that they actually executed that. So it's sort of like you push down the bubble in one place, which was the, the, the BYU problem where the ball's not getting snapped or not being snapped when it's supposed to or not supposed to, um, and the false starts related to that. Still had a couple. But then the bubble pops up somewhere else, and that now is the holds uh, against Utah. And so you have to, it's like when Herm Edwards says, I don't know, well, they're, 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 those are the, the, that's what caused the problems, okay? So you have to figure out what we need to do that prevents those particular problems. Not having guys lined up properly, you know, like on the line of scrimmage. Uh, what do we do to change up the cadence or the when the snap happens when we're in our snapping protocol, so that the the we can have, give our offensive tackles a little bit better chance. And what do we need to do so that we don't have as many false starts? Well, you have to then put into action things that you're doing in practice to limit those things. And just to just to follow up, uh, Jacob said ASU is one of the most penalized. ASU is the number one most penalized team in the country in penalty yards per game and second in the number of penalties per game. And you can maybe overcome that if you are an amazing football team. Uh, if you're the Miami Hurricanes uh, under Dennis Erickson and you win two championships in uh, the 90s, you know, the early 90s, whenever that was, uh, yeah, you can overcome that. But then you come to ASU with the same coaching and Vontez Burfect and all those guys, and then you become that undisciplined and you see what it gets you, gets you fired. Okay, And right now we're in that sort of a situation where this could go either way. Either they fix this, they go on a run, they only have the one penalty through three plus quarters against Stanford. Okay, that's good. They got two games at home. They Maybe they have games like that. They resolve it. They go on the road. They win some games. Okay, they got this taken care of. But if they don't, they're not good enough. And then you lose. And then guess what? It's your coaching that led to you not being disciplined enough on the field as the reason that you lost.
0: And we'll have to wait and see in terms of which way they end up going. But the the thing that is known is that this has become a reoccurring theme in terms of penalties and, and discipline being a possible problem in terms of losing games. But let's go on to the next topic in terms of ASU and the ESPN FBI in terms of Games And for the rest of the season, Chris, I'll go to you for this one. They were right about the Utah against ASU game. They had Utah favored a little bit of, of above ASU in that game and in their final games, ESPN FBI still has ASU as favorites in those last five games, but they say that they'll win 8.7 games this season. I'll, I'll toss it to you in terms of should ASU be expected to win the rest of their games this season? And do they have to win the rest of their games in order to be considered a successful season?
3: The short answer is they may have to, I would say it's, you know, 50, 50, maybe or whether they're going to have to uh, well, 50, 50, or even 60, 40 um, either way is not a proposition that you're going to feel good about if you lose one of those games. So they don't have any margin for error. Utah has played really well in the last two weeks, the Pac-12 South kind of week, maybe Utah goes on a run here. Uh, maybe Utah loses one, maybe loses two. I don't know. We're going to have to see what happens. Uh, the bottom line is that as I've always said from the outset, nothing short of nine wins is acceptable with this team. And especially when they have the NCAA situation looming, uh, that you have Ray Anderson saying that ASU should be a top 15 team every year. Uh, you know, that's not going to happen unless they probably run the table at, at worst lose one more game. They have no chance to win the South if they do anything more than lose one more game. And um, they're 12th in recruiting because of recruiting fell off because of the NCAA thing. So that means that this staff has even more that it needs to show in order to validate its status uh, being at ASU, right? It's one thing if you go nine wins and you uh, don't win the South this year in that type of a season, and you don't have the NCAA thing looming. Then you go, okay, uh, you know, it wasn't a great season. It was a good season. They missed some opportunities. They got to keep building. So, but if you got the NCAA thing and you're 12th in recruiting, and you win nine, and you and you win nine games, and you don't get to the the the, the, the championship, or you win, you go eight and four. I'm sorry, like that's just not good enough in the circumstances that you as a, a program have put yourselves in and that your administration has laid out as what is a requirement for being successful when they have not been a top uh, 15 to 20 team in the country in their prior three seasons, including the, uh, you know, four game season last year. So um, they're now backed up against the wall. They're going to have to come out. And like gangbusters and, and, and real off some really successful wins and games and get healthy and take that momentum up into their games into the Pacific Northwest. Uh, and if they don't, then it needs to be called for what it is. And I think people understand from listening to this podcast that we are prepared to do just that.
0: And it is definitely known that this next five games, there's a lot riding on it in terms of maybe possibly more so than just this season, as you just alluded to, but that's it for this edition of the Sun Devil source report podcast. Make sure to look out for the upon further review and 10 takeaways. Uh, on the site and the board in terms of if you want to know more about this loss against utah and then make sure to look at the column as well that chris will be putting up it'll put in perspective the significance of the loss and the importance for Herm and the others on the staff asu does have a bye week this week but it will still we will still have ton, tons of content so make sure to stay tuned to all of that for jacob runner carson brebber and chris cartman i'm ethan Ryder. see
3: you guys next time